Well, good morning, everyone, once again. Uh, we are beginning here what will probably be a study that will last well in through this year and probably largely into next as well. But that's a study in the book of Genesis. So if you would, just turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis and leave that open before you for a while. Uh, we will be getting to the reading of it shortly. Um, but before we actually touch the text itself, I want to set before you a few ideas um, mostly related to the method that we're adopting here and uh, why we're, we're covering the text in the way that we are. And so first of all, uh, these are uh, lectures. It sounds impressive. It's not as impressive as all that. It's, these are classes uh, as opposed to sermons. Uh, so I'm making a very careful distinction there between what we would call in the Greek Galencio and what I'm doing here in this text as we look at Genesis 1 and the chapter successively. A lecture in this sense is something that's, you could say, some mode of instruction uh, that emphasizes the need of the hearers uh, to embrace truth, to embrace doctrine. Whereas a sermon is a mode of instruction, yes, but it summarizes the truth of doctrine and urges its necessary practical application upon the hearer's conscience. So in both cases, uh, when we think about a lecture, uh, we think about something that is focused primarily on the mind. When we think about a sermon, we're thinking about something that is focused on the mind as well, but primarily seeking to urge the conscience to some activity. Now, in both cases, of course, both a lecture and a sermon, as it's dealing with the scriptures, it has to reflect in some sense the nature of the scriptures. Right? So in 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told that the entire word of God is good for doctrine, but also for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so, of course, a lecture is going to have a primary emphasis on actually agreeing with the doctrine taught to us through Scripture. But also, it has to have as well, at some stage, application. Whereas the sermon, as it of course takes the Word of God as, as true instruction, it is going to primarily focus on the applicatory aspects of it. So, in the history of the church, both have been used. Um, and that's really where I'm drawing down this morning and through our times together, both uh, in the Sabbath school and also our lectures and uh, covenant renewal this evening. Um, so in the 17th century, for instance, lectures tended to be briefer than sermons. Uh, the English Puritans tended to focus on pericopes of scripture or uh, confessional standards. Uh, the Scots tended to focus primarily on their chapters of scripture. But in both cases, the corpus of literature that we have in the 17th century arrives from lectures. Uh, of course, from sermons as well, but lectures like that of Thomas Ridgely on the larger catechism forms two large volumes. Uh, those are his lectures for his congregation um, through the confessional standards. Uh, in the other case, you have in the Scots, especially the likes of James Durham. Most of his material is actually just drawn from his lectures, um, as well as, of course, a few of his sermons, too. Now, it tended to be historically that lectures preceded sermons on the Lord's Day, and uh, days of sermons, which were either Tuesdays or Wednesdays, uh, were accompanied with lecturing. Uh, that tended to be on uh, Thursday evening. And really, why you had both of these ideas in the church, why you had both of these practices, is because the Westminster divines, our forebears as well, understood that there were actually two different kinds of functions of teaching in the church. In fact, you could even divide it along lines of office. Uh, the former Presbyterian church government, Presbyterian church government reads this, the Lord gives different gifts and diverse exercises according to these gifts in the ministry of the word. And though these different gifts may meet in and accordingly be exercised by one and the same minister, yet there will be several ministers in the same congregation, 
They may be designed to several employments, according to the different gifts in which each of them doth most excel. He that doth most excel in exposition of scripture, and teaching sound doctrine, and convincing gainsayers, than he doth in application, and is accordingly employed therein, he may be called a teacher or doctor. And nevertheless, where there is but one minister in a particular congregation, he is to perform as far as he is able the work of the ministry. In short, folks, when we think about lecturing in the 17th century, that tended to be the work of what you call a doctor in the church, rather than a pastor. Of course, they were both ruling officers in the church, they were both teaching officers, but one focused primarily on this aspect of setting before the congregation the truth of God's word, while having some application, not primarily application. Whereas a pastor was one, of course, who in his preaching was supposed to, of course, include that intellectual element, but emphasize the conscience and its bearing there. In other words, friend, as you look at the 17th century and, and how we're looking as well at our times together here, the lecture in some sense is preparatory to the sermon. Uh, so if you're thinking about this, you, you see that the lecture is supposed to be preparing the mind so that whenever we are sitting under the preached word of God, our minds are already informed, our consciences are already informed, and so we are better able to apply the scriptures through the sermon to ourselves. Now, in our time together, as we're looking through the book of Genesis, there are just a few objectives that we have in mind here. First of all, our objective is to be succinct. Uh, no more than 30 minutes is the plan. Um, and um, that's a dangerous thing for a speaker to say, but we'll, we're holding to it. Um, it's supposed to provide succinct analyses of the scripture, and it's supposed to be chapter by chapter. Um, so we're moving at a rather rapid pace, perhaps faster than we would through in the course of a sermon. Also, the purpose is to offer clarification on the textual, historical, or theological difficulties that we run into in the text. And then also we're to demonstrate as well the internal, um, you could even say the canonical coherence of each chapter within its section and book and the whole of scriptures. The aim here is also to contextualize whatever text we're looking at. To see it not only as its own unit, but also to see it in relation to its other, other aspects of context. And then finally, we're hoping in this morning hour to observe the principal applications which arise from each text. So we are going to be applying the text as we look at them. Uh, but the purpose here is primarily to set the text before us and then draw out at the end some of the principal applications we might find. The broader objectives. Um, I think these are the ones that we often overlook, but I, I want to stress just a few points that hopefully, as we're prayerfully engaged in this work together, um, will guide our thinking even as we leave this place. Uh, the first kind of immediate objective is that this is to offer tools and information to enrich private and family scripture reading. So this is primarily an attempt to offer tools for yourselves at home. Um, if this is helpful, uh, we're hoping that that's the way in which it's helpful uh, for private and for family reading. And then also, this is also an opportunity for us as a congregation to study the scriptures regularly, routinely. If we follow the, the method here, going chapter by chapter and um, with relative frequency, this means that the congregation will go through the entirety of the word of God every 12 years. Um, and then finally, uh, this is also supposed to be a support for Sabbath meditation, and also preparation for worship. So in many ways, these lectures are supposed to be preparing the mind, of course, and they're supposed to be providing, of course, the kinds of tools that you might be able to use privately and in the family. But really, this is also an opportunity for us as a congregation to prepare to sit under the Word of God, to really stay our minds as we prepare for worship together. Now, those are all of my introductory comments on the method. I want to come actually now to the book of Genesis, 
uh, just briefly. I want to talk a little bit about the approach that we're going to take. And I know, folks, these are things that you already know, and these are themes that you know quite well. But as we look at our theological approach to the book, we'll see that our method is really tied to our theology. So, of course, theologically, when we come to the book of Genesis, we take it as the word of God. It is inspired, inerrant, infallible. And especially when we think about the infallibility of the word of God and its inerrancy, we think about something that the theologians refer to as the plenary verbal inspiration of scripture. Now, plenary verbal does sound rather impressive, but all that it means is every single word is inspired by God. It's not just the broad ideas that are in Scripture, not just the doctrines that Scripture teaches are inspired, but every single word is inspired. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But we also believe that this is a text that has been preserved. As the eighth paragraph of the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith reads, the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages. When we approach Genesis, that's what we believe. We believe that every single word inspired by God, every single word preserved by God. Now that does inform our method then. So our method, first of all, is that we are taking the scriptures as a whole and we're saying that every constituent part of it, every single word that we find in it, is worthwhile, carefully chosen, inspired by the Spirit of God to communicate truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, friend, first of all, because of our theological predisposition, I'm not going to spend any time talking to you about the textual issues, uh, especially those issues that relate to what they call the documentary hypothesis. Uh, Just briefly, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, have always been the higher critical's focus. Um, The higher critics, such as Julius Wellhausen and others, have always tried to make the Pentateuch sort of the paradigm to dismantle the idea that Scripture is really inspired. Um, I'm not going to deal with any of those issues. Uh, We already believe that the Word of God, this text, Genesis, is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. So instead of looking at this text as something that's developing over time through human error and corruption, we're taking this as a text as it is the Word of God. Now that has with it certain basic ideas. Uh, First of all, that means that we are to be people who are paying attention to some extent to the linguistics of the text. So we're going to be paying attention to Hebrew words, because this is the way in which God has inspired the text. We'll pay attention to some of the different vocabulary terms that that are crucial for our understanding. And also we'll be looking at the syntax, the sentence structure as well. Because as we believe, Genesis is not just giving us ideas that are inspired, even the way in which these ideas come to us are inspired. But also we're going to look at the text literarily. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean here that we're going to be paying attention to the authorial intent, and we're also going to be thinking about the immediate audience, the, the, those who were first receiving the text, or those whom the writer, the, the human writer, had in mind as he was writing. And this is typically what we refer to in Reformed theology as the grammatical historical approach to exegesis. But under that category of a literal or literary reading of scripture, we're going to be paying attention also to narrative and rhetoric. Now, again, this goes back to our concept that the word of God in all of its parts are inspired, which means not only has the word of God given us truths, but we're also supposed to pay attention to the way, into the, sorry, paying attention to the way in which those truths are communicated to us. 
And so what I mean by that is we're going to make a close reading of the text. Where what we're doing is we're, we're looking at text divisions, we're looking at the structures of texts that are easily discernible from the chapter that we're looking at. And we're going to be asking the question, you know, what is the focus according to the text itself? Not, is it, not what is the focus I want to impose upon the text, but how is the text structured and what is the text emphasizing itself? In other words, what we're doing here is we're not just asking the what, but also the how of doctrine, how it comes to us in the text itself. And then, of course, we're also going to be looking canonically. We're going to be looking at the intertextual references and connections that these texts have with other books of Scripture. And finally, theologically, as we look at these texts of Scripture together, what we're doing is we are, in a small sense, we're going to be looking at the way in which revelation unfolds for us more and more clearly a picture of God and also his work. And so we're going to be looking at theological concepts as they're developing. But I want to make a disclaimer here just for a moment. We're not doing what I think many folks would think that we're doing, where we're trying to trace right the faith of Abraham. Uh, this, this idea that we can really access the faith of the patriarchs in its totality is something that's quite popular. But the problem is that it comes from a predisposition that this book is primarily religious history, in which all that we're getting really is the theology of the past. Where really what we believe about the scriptures is this is not really even about Abraham's faith. This is about Abraham's God. And God is revealing himself through, through the text, and yes, progressively. So we're looking more at the idea that God is revealing himself, gradually exfoliating his plan throughout the time. And as we look at the text, we're paying attention to how these things develop. But also, and this is perhaps the most crucial element that I'll be emphasizing in our times together, we're going to be looking at something that the theologians refer to as the sensus plenum. In other words, what we're doing is we're looking not at the human author primarily, because we recognize it's the divine author that really stands behind the text. Our aim is to see what is it that God himself is communicating. Um, and that means then that we can take the entire counsel of God and allow the entire scripture to inform our understanding of whatever text we find ourselves in. All of scripture then can be brought to bear on a particular text. Not everybody appreciates that approach, but because we believe in the one divine author, we actually believe that we can take later revelation and actually use it to help our understanding of whatever text we find ourselves in. Now, that's our approach. What's our structure? Well, first of all, I want you to note, friend, that um, our, our text that we have before us, like any text of Scripture, does have its own textual or structural markers to it. Um, and I'm not, of course, talking about chapters and verses. Um, the text itself divides itself. And what I mean by that is if you just look at the book of Genesis for a moment, you'll see one of the ways it does this. Now, in the first verse of the first chapter, we understand that we're looking at the beginning, the beginning in which God created the heaven and the earth. Now, that tells us what God has done. But does it tell us what the book is about? What's striking is if you come down to the fourth verse of the second chapter, we actually find a description of what this book is about. It is, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of this verse, it is Biblios Genesis. That's also, by the way, where we get the word, our English word for Genesis. It's taken from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of chapter 2, verse 4. 
Now, why do I take you there? Well, I take you there because the Hebrew text itself divides the first chapter at the second chapter in the fourth verse. In other words, according to the Hebrew text, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, down to chapter 2, verse 3, is supposed to be seen as one chapter. And I know what you're thinking. Well, then why do we have a division, uh, three verses beforehand? If the Hebrew text divides at the fourth verse, well, why does our second chapter begin at verse 1 of chapter 2? Well, our Hebrew divisions, like our uh, New Testament divisions in Greek, come to us through Archbishop Stephen Langton. Uh, he was a 12th century English cleric, um, and he basically wanted to create a reference system so that you and I could easily find ourselves, um, find for ourselves whatever text of scripture we might have in mind. It's a 12th century edition of the text. And so, though the chapter divisions are very helpful, we have to recognize that these things are not actually inspired. Um, and what we are looking for in the text, even though Langton did get it right many times, he certainly did, we are looking for the text to show us itself what exactly its focus is, and that requires us to look at these kinds of divisions. Now, if we're looking at these kinds of divisions and recognizing, um, I did bring my Hebrew Bible with me, uh, recognizing here that the text, the Hebrew text, itself divides at verse 4 of chapter 2, that tells us something about the function of chapter 1 right away. If the second chapter, the fourth verse in our reference system, is really the description of the book and everything that's to come after, the first chapter functions like a kind of introduction, a, a kind of proem, if you will. And then the book itself, as it's described here in the fourth verse of chapter 2, gives us the generation of the heavens and the earth. But what's striking about this is that's not the only division that you have here. Ten times you have the word here that you have in chapter 2, verse 4, that we have here translated generations. In Hebrew, that word is tolidot. Now, what's striking is tolidot really does divide the entire book. I want to give you a few examples. So you have chapter 2, verse 4. There you have the creation account that includes with it the fall. If you come over to chapter 5, verse 1, you'll notice here that you find that same word. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Then move over to chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Chapter 11, verse 10, going then from there to 37, verse 2. You find this. These are the generations of Jacob. Now those are five divisions here, but why is that important? Well, one in the original text, these, these phrases stand alone. Toledot has no prefix to it. It simply stands as its own kind of marker division. And then behind that, you have these other ideas, these other lesser divisions. And uh, I'll, I'll, I can rattle, rattle them off for you. At 10-1, 11-27, 25-12, 25-19, and 36-1, you have Toledot as well, but this time with a Volv prefix, which simply means that it's a continuation of something that's gone before. Now, what does this teach us? And I think this is the striking thing as we, we come to a close. There are major divisions in the book itself. The first division comes at creation. 
And then as we saw, it goes from creation to the generations of Adam, from the generations of Adam to the generations of Noah, from the generations of Noah to Shem, and from the generations of Shem to Jacob. You see how striking that is? The the book divides here very carefully, and we're going to see just in a second here why that's so crucial, and why it even helps our understanding. Because even the subdivisions that I rattled off to you there show us there is a basic idea that those five major divisions in the text really form the crux of the history that's set before us. The subdivisions are that of the generations of Ham and Japheth, and then of Terah, and then also of Ishmael, Isaac, and Esau. But what you have in those first five major divisions is this idea that there is one basic narrative in which all of these five five kinds of divisions represent epochs or periods of time that are crucial for our understanding. So first of all, friend, I want you to notice that in each of those divisions there is a pattern. You'll notice here that just in the first pattern there is creation, fall, promise. That's Genesis 2, verses uh, 2 down to the 4th chapter, verse 6. The next division, starting at 5-1 and going to 6-8, shows us the same thing. Procreation, death, so first of all, of course, Abel, but then all of those who are listed as having died, and then provision. You have in the next division, verses, verse 9 of chapter 6 down to the first verse of chapter 10, this theme of prosperity moving to judgment, that is the flood, and then from the flood moving to deliverance. Chapter 10, verse 1 down to 11:26, you have the proliferation of mankind, its scattering at Babel, and then its preservation. You have also in the next division, 11:27 to 25:11, you have the calling of Abraham, the crisis, all of the different kinds of ways the promise was opposed. And then the fulfillment, in part, of the promises that were made. And then finally, you have in that last section, uh, 2512 to 5026, the propagation of the promised line, the crises again, and all of those things that oppose the promise. And then it closes with a narrative of salvation. Do you see the pattern in each of these sections? You have blessing, crisis, deliverance. Each of those divisions runs cyclically. And it's important for us to understand why that's crucial. Because it takes us back to the crisis of Genesis 3. Uh, You see, of course, in Genesis 3, there is that promise that is made. That there would be the seed of the woman that would come to crush the head of the serpent. And that there would be this division between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In these five divisions, see how that narrows. First of all, you have it in Adam. It was be from Adam's line that Christ would come. And then that narrows down to Seth. Seth rather than Cain. That narrows further. Not only do Sethites belong to this line, but now Noah specifically is chosen to be part of this line. And then from Noah, it's promised that Shem would even be further narrowed as the progenitor. Shem would narrow into those who would be called Hebrews, that is, of the seed of Abram. And then that would narrow even further, from Jacob to the Israelites, all of the Israelites there. 
What you have here, friend, is this idea that the promise is gradually exfoliating. It's becoming more and more clear what will be the line from which this seed, this promised seed of the woman would come. And every single division in the book of Genesis, as it stands to us in the text itself, emphasizes one aspect of that progression or exfoliation. What you have here, then, is this idea. It's a simple narrative, but it explains the entire book. We go from creation to the fall, and from the fall to the promise of the seed. We have the propagation of the human race. If you will, it's blessing, leading to the flood, it's crisis, and then repopulation again for the sake of the promised seed. You have the proliferation of men, once again, it's blessing, it's crisis and Babel. And then it's recovery, promised in Genesis 12. There is this idea then, that there is this promise or blessing leading to difficulty, leading to preservation and the promise of redemption. That runs right through the text from the first to the last. I want to say a few things then as we close. First of all, in the scriptures, this sets us up to understand why there is this emphasis on the promised seed. Why is it that we are focused so primarily on Israel? Well, friend, we have to go back to the book of Genesis and to see that Genesis has narrowed for us the line from which the promised seed would come. The narrowing begins at Genesis and then pervades throughout the Old Testament. Um, And so even though you do have cases like the book of Jonah or the book of Nahum that do focus mildly, in some sense, on the Gentile world, the focus of Scripture is bent on this, the one who, is, who has been promised, and the seed, the line from which he would come. What's striking about this text, too, is that even as it teaches us how to think about the entire scriptures, it also helps us think about even what's to come. If you look at the end of Genesis 50, verse 25, well, 22 to 25, you have Joseph anticipating the Exodus. Now, he does this, of course, by saying that God will certainly deliver his people, and once they are delivered, Joseph's bones are to be taken and buried into Canaan, just as Jacob himself had urged upon Joseph before he had died. Now, as you move to the book of Exodus, Exodus 13, Moses does that very thing. He takes up the bones of Joseph and he transports them. And then in Joshua 24, the end of the book of Joshua, you have the actual internment of Joseph's body. What is this teaching us? How does, how does the end of Genesis feature throughout all of these books and this narrative of the Lord narrowing his people, making them peculiar that they might be a blessing to the nations? Why is this one basic idea threaded throughout these five books of Scripture, or six books of Scripture, rather, this internment of Joseph's bones? Calvin, I think, is helpful here. He said it was the hope of a heavenly Canaan that the people of God were there being God. In other words, this is the reason he writes why Jacob so esteemed being buried there is to bind his son Joseph by an oath to this promise. This is why Joseph commanded that his own bones were to be transferred there at a time some centuries later. Long after that, they had fallen into dust. It was for this, to teach Israel to hope for that heavenly Canaan. It ties us back, of course, to how the the apostle speaks about the faith of Israel in Hebrews 11. They sought a city. Made by God, not made by man. And what you have then in the book of Genesis is this idea. Yes, it's in a type, but it's a real idea that we can't miss. The entire book leads us to think 
of course, about the redemption that is to be found in Christ. It's, an, it's a way of encouraging the people of God to keep their eyes and their ears attuned to how God is going to reveal him in time. In every way, it prepares us then for the revelation of Jesus Christ. My friend, I know that that was a bit um, a bit monotonous, and there's there's a lot that we had to cover there. But but I hope as we leave this uh, this first time together that we see first of all that the book itself we don't need to go really beyond it. Um, the book itself is incredibly rich. It is the Word of God, and the book itself has a Christological focus. That's not something that we're putting in the text. From Genesis 3.15, the very narrowing of the text tells us that the focus rightly is fixed on the one who is promised to crush the head of the serpent. And so as we look at this text together, we can't miss that. This is a book that teaches Christ to us. Yes, of course, we have the fullest revelation in the New Testament. But it's a book in which Christ really is present. And for that, of course, we should be rejoicing. The Lord Jesus Christ found on every page. Amen.